Thanks for listening to a little more conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara-Byrne. Tonight, how did a female stingray get pregnant at a North Carolina aquarium? Despite not sharing her tank with a male ray, there's been quite a bit of speculation. We dive into that sea creature enigma and look at some possible explanations. It has been called the holy grail of hockey card finds, of sports card finds. An unopened case of 16 boxes of 1979 Opeechi hockey cards. What makes that year so special? Well, of course, the Wayne Gretzky rookie card, the most valuable hockey card of them all. Now, that case spent years in storage in Regina before being found during a cleanup and has just fetched millions at auction. It was sold by a Canadian who remains anonymous to another Canadian who remains anonymous. We find out how it all played out. It's not even the end of February, but fire season is already underway officially in Alberta. And there is concern over the number of zombie or holdover fires still burning in Alberta and BC. That on the heels of the worst wildfire season in Canadian history. So what could 2024 bring and are we ready? But first, the federal government tabled its long-awaited Online Harms Act today, a bill that proposes new regulatory bodies and changes to a number of laws in new legislation to tackle online abuse. So what exactly is being proposed. Is it good policy? Does it go far enough? Does it go too far? We look into that. Let's get to something that happened today in Ottawa because it's been a long time coming. This was a bill that was meant to be passed back in 2021. It didn't happen. It's been revised. The Liberal government's proposing new regulatory bodies and changes to a number of laws in new legislation to tackle online abuse. It's called the Online Harms Act, or Bill C-63, tabled today. It proposes to police seven categories of harmful content online. Here is the Justice Minister. Under this bill, major online services will have three overarching obligations. A duty to protect children, a duty to act responsibly, and the duty to remove the most egregious content. This bill targets the worst of what we see online content that sexually victimizes children or re-victimizes survivors, intimate content shared without consent, content that incites violence, extremism or terrorism, content that incites violence or foments hatred, and content that is used to bully a child or induce a child to self-harm. The Justice Minister there, Arif Varani, today. The Online Harms Act will include the creation of a new regulator that will hold online platforms accountable for harmful content they host. Uh, the body would be called the Digital Safety Commission, expected to oversee a digital safety office. So there's a lot of things going on here. Alongside the Justice Minister today, just to remind people what this was all about, was two parents who spoke of the devastating impact that online harm has had on their kids, including one whose daughter was sexually abused as a child and whose images still, still circulate online. We need a culture of lawfulness that strongly enforces internet regulation. The unregulated internet has damaged my child and countless children across the country. Government's also proposing to establish a digital safety ombud who would offer support to victims and guidance to social media companies. Listen, there's a lot to unpack in this tonight. And what's what obviously the big question is, what did they set out to, to solve and have they solved it? Michael Geist is the Canada Research Chair in Internet and E-Commerce Law at the University of Ottawa. He's been with us before and spoken on this before. Michael, thank you. Oh, thanks for having me. Interesting. I mean, it, it's as you pointed out, I think it's 110 pages. There is a lot in here. I guess when you boil it down to brass tacks, what were they setting out to solve and, and, and did they do a decent enough job of trying to solve it? Well, I, I think we have to almost go back several years. You mentioned that there was 
uh, an initial attempt, at least a consultation on this issue. Uh, and at that time, I don't think that they really had figured out, quite frankly, what it is that they were looking to do. They were in some ways looking primarily, I think, uh, to demonize big tech or at least take on big tech as opposed to necessarily craft something that really focused on the harms. And, you know, I think the starting point and the good starting point with this legislation is that it is much more focused and targeted on real harms. It, it identifies several of them and, and really focuses on how can uh, there be measures to try to, to ensure that the big tech platforms act more responsibly when it comes to that, those platforms with real liability if they fail to do so. I think there are concerns in the legislation from an enforcement perspective and a bunch of provisions that sort of look at complaints at the Human Rights Commission that a lot of people are focused on. But the fundamental part of it is look at, a, at several harms and try to find a way to, to mitigate against some of those. And I think it does a pretty good job as a starting point. Yeah, I mean, they he, they spoke today about the three duties, right, which seem to, and I don't think anybody out there would disagree necessarily with how those duties are laid out. I think that's right. Uh, duty to act responsibly, duty to make certain content, content inaccessible, and a duty to protect children. No question, duty to protect children is an easy one. There isn't actually a lot of det detail in the legislation on what that actually means, uh, but certainly I think most most can get on, everyone can get on board with that. On duty to make certain content inaccessible, in other words, take down or remove certain content, that's where there was certain concerns from some of their earlier proposals where they really did envision broad takedowns, website blocking, and there were a lot of concerns about what that would mean for, let's say, potentially what's known as awful but lawful content, content that may raise concerns but is still at the end of the day lawful. And what they've done here is actually really limited to, to a couple of areas in terms of making content inaccessible in a way that I think will leave people a bit more comfortable. And then on the duty to act responsibly, they've largely borrowed from what we find in the UK and in the European Union uh, around some of the obligations that the tech platforms will face. And so using that kind of framing, I think actually really does advance some of the goals. There are, as, a, as we were saying earlier, a number of issues we can get to, if you like, around enforcement and some of the other kinds of things. But the core of the Online Harms Act is on those three duties, and I think it's a problem, it's a good starting point. Were there not rules in place for a lot of this? I mean, are there not laws in place already for a lot of this? Was it, was it, I mean, reading what they were talking about today, you, you, you can understand what they're trying to get to, but were there not existing things already in, in place that would tackle a lot of this as well, a lot of the stuff that's out there? I guess, what was the, what was the solution they were proposing? To, what is the problem to the solution they're proposing? Yeah, no, that's a good question, and and it, and, it, and there, I know a lot of people raise that as one of their initial responses. If you're focused on unlawful content that's already covered by the criminal code or other provisions, then why do you need this this law? And I think the answer to that is that that while it is true that many of these issues were already covered under the law, the question about the how the tech platforms, how these social media companies would respond, whether or not their response was sufficiently transparent. Uh, whether it was consistent enough, um, and you know, and I think that that's where a lot of the concerns lie. And so, this is designed to establish some clear-cut standards to ensure there's greater transparency associated with what takes place, and to build in some liability for failing to do so. 
How does it do that? I mean, how does it, for instance, I think one of the things that came up today was sort of what we call revenge porn, right? And and how difficult it is to get that taken down, for just as an example, how difficult it can be sometimes if a complaint is filed to have that taken down. I gather reading through this, uh, my understanding is that would be made much quicker. I don't know how that would be done, but the aim would be to have that, you know, have that content taken down as soon as the complaint was made. It is. That's right. There's a, there, there are seven harms that are identified in the law, and and one of them, one of them that involves the takedowns, involves intimate content that's communicated without consent. In other words, someone had a reasonable expectation of privacy. They didn't consent to the communication of that content. There was some that was either sexually explicit or involved nudity, and it gets sent along. And so uh, the, the, the law speaks to, or this bill speaks to the prospect of flagging the content. And so these platforms will be required to have flagging capability so people can identify where they think there is content that raises an issue. Many of them already have it. So in some ways, some of these things are, are really just requiring what companies are already doing, but they've got to have the flagging requirement. And now they've got to respond to that flagging requirement within 24 hours. And there are a whole series of rules where there's the potential for appeal and review. So they've tried to build in a bit of due process associated with that as well. One of the things I've always, and I don't know if this analogy makes sense, but I always think of this as, you know, a lot of policing the highway, no matter how big that highway is. And there's a lot of people on the highway. Most of them are obeying the rules. And yet there are all these roads elsewhere that we don't see, that we don't know enough about. Uh, and it's those roads that we should be worried about, those arteries that we should be worried about. Is, is, that a, is that a proper analogy for what we're seeing here? Because it feels like they're policing the highway, but a lot of this stuff is going on elsewhere. I think it often is, although this is, frankly, going after the big highways. You know, they're, right. In terms of who this is covering, it covers, by and large, the larger players. It covers social media companies, live streaming services, adult sites. And then yet to be determined is a certain threshold. You've got to have a certain number of users in Canada to be looped into this. So if we're talking about some of the back roads that may not have a lot of users or we don't tend to see them as much, they may not be captured by this legislation. And so I think we do need to recognize this is not going to solve every issue online, um, and nor should any, so no one should expect it, nor are all the issues associated with some of these harms exclusively online. I think we've had a tendency at times to think this is strictly an online issue. I don't think it is. You know, when we look at some of the hate and anti-Semitism, Islamophobia, Islamophobia that we've seen uh, in recent months, that's not just an online issue. It's happening online, but it's happening offline as well. So these are real issues, and to the extent to which they are occurring online, especially on the larger platforms, this is designed to, to bring some, some rules or at least some enforcement mechanisms to try to deal with it. We're breaking down the Online Harms Act that was tabled today in Parliament, Bill C-63, before, the, uh, before all the partisans get into it and start telling you what it means and what it doesn't and so on. Michael Geist is with us to do that, Canada Research Chair in Internet and E-Commerce Law at the University of Ottawa. Michael, obviously, I'm sure you're paying attention to what's going on in social media tonight, and there's been a fair amount of red flags going up about some of the, some of the, the, the content of this act. One of them is the Digital Safety Commission. I think you pointed that out. Another is some pretty stringent laws uh, around uh, hate crime right? A life sentence for, for hate speech, I think is what it was. Uh, what have you made of it? What were the red flags in there for you tonight? Yeah, those were at least two of them. Uh, uh, let me start with the online harms piece, and then we can come to the Human Rights Act uh, related provisions. On the issue of, of how this gets enforced, that's where I think there was a real concern, and I really hope that it get, doesn't get lost. 
So the government is creating a new digital safety commission, which frankly is the feel almost of a new CRTC. Um, and the kinds of powers that this has are, are, are pretty remarkable. It's everything from making rules about content that may be made inaccessible under the law, investigative powers, hearings that are by default open, but it can choose in some circumstances to close them to the public. There's a laundry list of new regulations it can make in codes of conduct, the power to levy all sorts of penalties up to 6 to 8% of global revenues of, 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 of some of the companies. So we're talking about a ton of new powers, and this is between three and five commissioners that will be appointed to this, this new commission. There isn't a ton of oversight when it comes to this commission. In fact, it even suggests that the commission isn't subject to any legal or technical rules of evidence. And so I've got some real concerns about that enforcement piece. There had to be some kind of mechanism to enforce, but creating this whole new body without at the same time ensuring that kind of builds the trust and confidence of people, I think is a big mistake. Yeah. And, and on the human rights side, because that one's getting a lot of attention tonight, I'll get to the last question after the obvious last question, but on the human rights uh, side, uh, on the Canadian Human Rights Act, there's some concerns about that tonight, too. There are, and, and it raises, there, there are a couple of elements there. On, there are some criminal code provisions that seek to up the penalties, including up to life in prison for advocating or promoting genocide. There's a couple of references to that kind of life in prison. I don't think it, that realistically, judges sending anybody away for life on speech, but nevertheless, the fact that it's been put in the bill, I think is certainly leaving people with some concerns. And even more, we're seeing a lot of commentary about the expansion of the Canadian Human, of the Canada Human Rights Act and the ability to use that to launch complaints around communicating hate speech. Now, that's not sort of linking to it or private communications, but it talks about penalties as high as $20,000 um, per case. And so this is, in, ironically, this is the provisions that, are, that don't involve big tech. So this is instead individuals that can then use the Human Rights Commission uh, to, to launch complaints once this, once this is established. And I think they're just feared this is going to turn us into a circus. The, the prospect of hundreds or potentially thousands of these kinds of complaints could overwhelm the commission. We can, you can, I think you can well envision this being used for nuisance purposes and at times, of course, for legit purposes. But the prospect that, that this is where a lot of the focus is at, uh, I think, is, is in some ways detracting from much of the attention on what is the bulk of this bill. Uh, but nevertheless, understandably, is getting a lot of attention to them. Yeah, it always feels that way when these things are put out. People will focus on a couple of things they don't like. So if you were to weigh it between the intentions and the law of unintended consequences, how do you think, uh, what's your, I mean, you've been following this for a long time. What does Bill C-63 uh, seem to you on first glance? Well, you know, you know the, the, the reality when we're, when judging this bill is that the kind of the metric is in some ways what the government had in mind several years ago. And by that standard, it's miles better than, than what they were contemplating. In fact, I would say it's, it's considerably better also when we contrast it with some of the government's earlier Internet legislation. So in some ways, you know, we had Bill C-11, the streaming bill, and Bill C-18, the news bill, which, of course, faced a lot of criticism. We've talked on this show before, before mm -hmm. about that. And, and in some ways, it feels like this is really the first bill that's been driven more by policy rather than some of the lobbyist demands or settling scores with big tech. And so I think that's, that's a really positive step. I think there's unquestionably um, the need for some careful study. You know, as people dig into 
this more than 100-page bill. A lot of people are identifying real concerns about some of the standards and thresholds around some of the definitions that are in there. We talked about the Human Rights Code, the lack of, of oversight, and, when it, and some of the safeguards with the enforcement side. So I think there is unquestionably room for improvement. But as a starting point, honestly, I would say that of the three big Internet bills, this is probably the best starting point out of the gate that we've had. Some might say that's damning it with fake praise, given how, how challenging the other two were. Um, but it legitimately is a whole lot better than I think a lot of people were expecting. Yeah, well, Michael, faint praise from you is is above what you've what you've said previously about some of the other ones. Michael, I really appreciate your time as always. Thanks for digging into this with us tonight. Uh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Let's talk wildfire season. It may seem a bit early, right? I mean, it's not even the end of February yet, or we are at the end of February. We're not even into March yet. Now, I didn't know this, but traditionally, the wildfire season in Alberta starts on March the first, right? Uh, of course, we're coming off the record wildfire season, 18.5 million hectares of Canadian land burnt last year. That was the worst ever on record. It surpassed the previous record of about 7.6 million hectares. So you can see just how bad it was. And, um, you know, and it will leave it, it will have an impact. Last year will have an impact on this year. That could play out as early as as spring, and we're only we're less than a month away from spring beginning. You know, BC's uh, worst ever wildfire season in 2023 appears to have carried over into 2024. The mild and dry fall and winter have created conditions for a record number of so-called zombie fires. Many parts of BC had lower than average rainfall, uh, rain in the fall, and the ground did not get saturated enough to extinguish them. And those fires can actually pick up again. They burn underneath the snowpack. They can pick up again and pose a new danger come spring. We just didn't get the saturating rains that we needed. And so those fires have crept below ground and are kind of smoldering below the surface of the, of the soils. Meantime, the Alberta government, as I mentioned, has declared an early start to the 2024 wild season. It traditionally runs from March 1st to October 31st, but Alberta's Forestry and Parks Minister declared it had begun last week, 10 days earlier than usual. Todd Lowen says the impact of the record 2023 wildfire season showed the importance of a collective approach to dealing with disaster. Uh, during the 2020 season, there were 1,092 wildfires that burnt in Alberta. That's about 10 times the five-year average. And a total of 54 of those new fires and the, are still burning, those zombie fires I was mentioning. And that could mean we're already heading into a tough situation in 2024. Well, unless something happens over the next couple of weeks here and we get a, you know, a big influx of precipitation or the spring ends up being you know, very, very wet, then we're entering this fire season in, in no better condition than we left it uh, last fall. Right. Robert Gray, wildland fire ecologist and president of RW Gray Consulting, is with us this half hour. Uh, Robert, thanks so much for your time tonight. Uh, you're welcome, Ben. It feels early to have you back. I'll be honest, because we spoke, obviously, last year at the height of all of this. And here we are. It's February. They got a, they got a big dump of snow in, uh, in Edmonton today. And it's just strange to be talking about this so early. Uh, yeah, it is. It's quite strange. But, you know, there's a holdover drought condition from last year, and uh, the snow is coming off fairly quickly you know, prior to today with the foot of snow in Edmonton. So, Yeah. Tell me a bit about how that, how that plays in from year to year, because I think a lot of us who don't pay a lot of attention to this, and just, this could just be me when I say a lot of us, it could just be me. We kind of think as we think of the fall and the winter as sort of being the reset, right? Like everything that you saw through the spring and the summer stops. And then, you know, you sort of go through this cycle again. But I guess with these zombie fires, we see that in fact, it does carry on through the uh, fall and winter months. 
Yeah, the, the the thinking is always that the you, like you said you get this reset. So in in our in sort of fire terms, it's it's you're recharging the fuels with moisture, and that just hasn't happened this year. And and it didn't happen in twenty two twenty three either, which is why we had such a bad fire season in twenty twenty three. There was a holdover drought from the previous year, so that affects the ground fuels. So that's the deep duff layer and the peat layer, especially up in the boreal forest. And it also affects the large fuels, the logs. So, you know, in what was considered sort of typical conditions, those fuels didn't dry out until later in the fire season, you know, kind of late July, August. But if they're dry at the start of the fire season and fire gets into those fuels, it's hard to put it out. And they they basically just suck a lot of resources in. So um, if those fuels are involved very early on, it takes a lot of resources to put them out, to extinguish them. Every subsequent fire has fewer resources available to it. So, you know, heading into more to the sort of traditional fire season, which is July and August, you have fewer and fewer resources available. Subsequent fires get bigger. That's one of the big problems with things ready to go so early in the year. Yeah. Tell me a bit about zombie fires, because it's it's a term I'd heard before, but clearly it was a, a source of concern this year, both in B.C. and Alberta. Yeah, so holdover fires, they're not unusual. What's what's unusual this year is just the number of them, and that was because so much of the boreal burnt last year. So boreal forests in the north, um, they tend to have significant accumulations of peat. So, so, you know, basically dead material that builds up, you know, on the ground and into the, into the soil layer. So deep layers of peat, because this year they were dried, you know, well below a meter down. So a fire gets into that. Snow lands on top of it. It's it's basically insulated, so it's nice and warm down there. There's just enough oxygen to keep things going. So they basically just sit there and smolder away. The danger comes in the springtime once the snow is gone and the surface starts to dry out. A little bit of wind kicks up, tree falls over, and these things are now on the surface. If they're close to the edge of a burn scar from last year, there's a chance that they can basically get up and run into new fuels. If they're well in the middle of these old burn scars from last year, they're not going to do anything. They're going to, you know, they'll pop to the surface, but they're not going to, they're not going to run anywhere. Which, I, in this case, I mean, I guess that that therein lies the problem. I think that's what was talked about uh, in a few reports that I've seen so far. Is the concern is that they will, in fact, you know, as soon as as soon as it starts to warm up a bit, they are going to, in fact, move into areas where there's un. In other words, they're going to move into into areas where there's fresh things to burn. That could be a big problem right off the bat. Because I think the concern is this year uh, is is you know we don't want to get off to the same start we got off to last year, right? I mean, that goes without saying. It definitely doesn't go without saying. We we don't want to be you know hitting the ground you know and, and hitting you know fires a lot of fires right off the bat because it's going to pull a lot of resources in. The other thing is is you know our our crews don't really come on until you know kind of April May and June especially here in BC Alberta they come on a little bit sooner. But the other really important factor here Ben is that um, these crews didn't get much downtime. You know, we had crews in BC that saw 130 days on fires. That's unheard of. And they need a break. And a break has to be more than two or three months. If they're heading right back into a horrible fire scene that's going to go on for another four or five months, the, the mental and emotional and physical impact is going to be significant. 
Yeah, tell me. I mean, I think there has been some complaints in Alberta about about preparation. There's been very little communication, at least according to uh, to the one agency that there's been communicate not much communication between the province and uh, and firefighters yet. And I, I don't know what the situation in BC has been so far this year. But you would think that uh, that they would be planning for this almost right away. The moment the moment uh, sort of fall came, they'd be sitting down to try and plan out the next fire season and how to how to handle it. Exactly. And and one of the big things that they're having to worry about is, is retention and recruitment. You know, right. so too many of these, too many bad fire seasons in a row and people are just, you know, the impact is, like I said, is so significant that they're going to do this for five years and they're going to bail. You know, this, it doesn't become a 20 year career like it did 20, 30, 40 years ago, three or four or five seasons with this. And you've got really seasoned, experienced people by that five years and they're going to step away. And so right. the other so the difficulty here is there's both recruitment and retention, but there's also people who only have one or two or three fire seasons and they're being put into positions of significant responsibility with not a whole lot of experience behind them. So that's the second danger. It becomes kind of a, a leadership and safety problem. Right. And of course, we saw that, unfortunately, last year. I mean, in, in different provinces, there were six fire, wildland firefighters who were killed under different circumstances. But a reminder of just of the dangers of the job as well, not just the, the fatigue and the pressure, but the dangers of it. And I, I would suspect that, um, that that makes it even more difficult to recruit. It, it does. You know, uh, you know, people might, you know, if the colleague is sort of looking at someone who's a friend who's been in firefighting and they'll say, you know, is this, is this something I should get into? Well, the first conversation is going to be about, well, I had this near miss or, you know, I had colleagues who had a near miss or I knew someone, you know, who was one of the poor people who, who died last year. And that's, that's a bit of a shuddering effect on people. You know, they're going to think twice about that. It's, I mean, it's still a worthwhile career, but you have to go into it with your eyes open and you have to be constantly vigilant Situational awareness and critical thinking are critical parts of it. Robert Gray is with us, Wildland Fire Ecologist, president of RW, RW Gray Consulting. We spoke with him, uh, obviously, quite a few times last year at the height of the Canada's wild, worst wildfire season on record. Now we're sort of checking in on what 2024 might look like. It may feel early, but wildfire season is already officially underway in Alberta. Usually it starts on March the 1st. It began officially 10 days early this year. And there's been a lot of talk about holdover fires, zombie fires, as they're called, building, uh, burning in both provinces and no doubt elsewhere as well. Uh, these are fires that are left over, still smoldering from 2023 and are pose a bit of a threat heading into 2024. Uh, Robert, when you look at, at the lay of the land for 2024, I think last year must have been a wake-up call for just about everybody. Have you seen the sort of urgency over the course of this fall and winter uh, heading into 2024 that you would expect given what we saw in 2023? No, unfortunately, uh, Ben, I haven't. Uh, I mean, uh, we just looked at the, the budget that was released by the province and um, only about $265 million was earmarked through appropriations for for wildfire and only right. 60 of that was actually mitigation the rest is is response and recovery right. and then and that's in bc right Robert? that's in bc that's in yes yeah, in bc i, I haven't mm -hmm. looked at alberta so right the other the other important thing is the um the contingency that's set aside in case there's this you know a significant emergency that goes above appropriations and you know, a contingency is a reaction fund so and there's four billion dollars set aside this year you know in case 2024 is a bad fire season but at some point, we have to switch that narrative to upfront spending on fuels mitigation and prevention action. Otherwise, we're going to be setting aside more and more contingency to deal with 
fires that we just we didn't use the opportunity to get ahead of. We're constantly reacting to them. Right. And I think you mentioned that last year, too, that that was one of the ways we would have to deal with this in the future to make sure it didn't happen again. Uh, just in terms of conditions heading into 2024, I mean, it feels like if you any, anywhere you read, it feels like it's been it's been awfully dry again. Yeah. Yeah. You look at the snow, the, that's the, basically the snow tail data in most uh, regions of the province have got below normal snowpack. Um, although that isn't always an indicator. In the past, we've had you know, above normal snowpack in spring, April, May, and it just comes off very fast. This year, if we have a, a below normal snowpack and it comes off very fast, like we expect, Environment Canada is suggesting uh, March, April, May, above normal temp, below normal precip for the west. Uh, so what little snow is there will likely come off very, very quickly, and then uh, mid to high elevations will be available to burn much sooner. Right. I, I, and again, I mean, that's that's one of those situations where it's no wonder that Alberta started their their fire season 10 days early already, um, which allows them. Up. This is not because it's it's a declaration that allows them to do more to mitigate in advance, by the way. Um, so what should, I mean, it, it feels like I mean, I, I, obviously, history does not often repeat itself, even with Mother Nature. But it feels like as we're heading into 2024, um, that that things are, are that we should be bracing for yet another tough year. And we mightn't be as ready for it as we would like to see, given the fatigue for the fire crews from last year. Uh, I know that BC and Alberta have talked about doing a better job in terms of planning and organization, but it doesn't feel like there's a lot more money there. Um, you know, it, it feels like we're sort of wandering. We just have to keep our fingers crossed, and that's not a nice feeling. No, it's not. I mean, uh, you know, um, hope is not a good option. It's not a good strategy. You know, um, in, in, in fire science and fire management, we 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 plan for the worst and hope for the best, but right now we're just sort of sleepwalking into potential disaster, and that's not what you want to do with these things. And it's not how we deal with other disturbances, Ben. I mean, you know, flood mitigation, earthquake mitigation, we are upfront dealing with mitigation and prevention with those things. Wildfire, for some reason, we are constantly in reaction mode, and that's just not going to work in the future. Yeah, I, I honestly, I would have thought after the conversations we had last summer that that would have been one of those main topics of conversation over the last several months, you know, October, November, November into the winter. And you're right, I just haven't seen much about it uh, since that began. I haven't seen a lot of people, I mean, it doesn't mean it's not happening, but it doesn't feel like there's, it feels like the problem with the fires is that we only start focusing on them when they start burning and burning spectacularly, unfortunately. Yeah, yeah, burning spectacularly, you know, and I, I think I think part of the problem, you know, my colleagues and I were sort of looking at this going, what is the problem? Where's the miss where's the missing part of the of the you know, the conversation here? And one thing is um there's this shiny new object out there called AI and you know, and, and advanced technologies and stuff and artificial intelligence. And there are people selling the idea that oh we we can use this technology to find the fires quicker and get them out quicker. Well, it's an unproven technology, um, and it hasn't worked any other location. So that's not a winning strategy. The other one is that climate change is going to make fires so bad that it's not worth investing in large-scale mitigation. That's also unproven and simply an opinion. But those, you know, those are the kind of arguments that land well with you know, governments that are concerned about spending money. Because you know, it looks like, why would we spend billions if it's going to be for naught? And if this new technology can save us money, we'll do that. And that, you know, we're still trying to figure out what is the message that's getting through. And our message isn't. Interesting. Because I, I would have thought, I heard your message echoed by fire chiefs across the country last summer, basically saying we need to find a way to make, you know, to, to get rid of the fuel so they don't burn the way they're burning now. 
Yeah, yeah. And, and this, this whole idea that if we can just, you know, so if you look at the budget this year, there's plenty of money for new aircraft and, you know, all this sort of response mechanism, which is, you still have to have it. You still have to have boots on the ground and retardant ships and the whole bit. But the more you're successful at suppressing fire, it's a paradox. The worse the eventual fires become. The only way out of this positive feedback loop is to control what the fires burn, and that's the fuels. And you have to do that at a very large scale. And it's not going to be everywhere. We can use tools and technology to figure out where to prioritize to do that and how much to do it. But we're still going to have to spend the money to do it. And that, in the long run, pays off. Um, You know, plenty of analysis done by um, uh, various government agencies, FEMA in the U.S., that shows that if you spend $10 up front, you're going to save $30 on the other end. It's a well-established formula. Robert, I didn't expect us to be having this conversation so early in 2024, but as always, thank you for your time. I mean, fingers crossed, right? I mean, what else at this point? Uh, one can only hope that we get some precipitation in the West over over the next few months. Exactly. Thank you so much, Ben. We're going to talk uh, collectibles this half hour because this is an incredible story. I don't know if you've been following this, but over the weekend, there was an auction uh, that auctioned off this case of hockey cards containing 16 boxes of unopened packs of 1979 Opeechee hockey cards. Of course, what makes that particular year so valuable, so very valuable, is the promise of there being many We don't know how many, but perhaps many uh, Wayne Gretzky rookie cards, right? And those are incredibly valuable. They've sold for a huge amount of money. I think the the most expensive Wayne Gretzky rookie card in mint condition went for something like $3.75 million. So you can imagine just how not only the sort of the novelty of having an unopened case of these cards, uh, but the promise of there being a Wayne Gretzky rookie card amongst them, if they're ever opened, right? They were found um, in a attic in Regina. They belonged to a collector who had bought cases of cards over the years and apparently just never didn't open all of them. So some of them just sat around, including this one. Uh, And they have sold at auction for an absolute fortune. But let's get an idea from Heritage Auctions because this is a bit of a video they put put up about going to pick up the cards and bringing them to get tested by a official, basically by the person who does the valuation for them. Have a listen. Up until now, we weren't exactly sure one of these existed. You'll hear rumors that, that a collector has cited one, but you'll never see a picture. And this was just recently discovered and found out exactly what was in it. It's like a unicorn in the hobby. It's a mythical creature. It's, it's, it just doesn't exist. We are leaving Chicago and heading to Northwest Indiana. You know, finds like this don't happen. They, it's once in a generation thing. This is absolutely unbelievable. This is probably the holy grail of any sport, 70 on up. The company here is Baseball Card Exchange. I'm the owner, Steve Hart. In my 34th year, of basically doing this every day of my life. Wow. Looks like it was shipped from Opeechee yesterday. I always thought to myself, if we ever were going to find a case of this, that it would probably be buried somewhere up deep in Canada, and the owners probably didn't even know they had it. Buried somewhere up deep in Canada. 
Well, they were absolutely right. Not that deep. Regina's not that deep, but it was buried in Canada somewhere in an attic. I mean, this is really a huge amount of money. So there were 15 unique bidders uh, for this case of cards. And in the end, it came down to an American and a Canadian fighting it out. The Canadian has won also. In all of this, everyone has chosen to stay anonymous, by the way. Someone out there may know, if you're listening in Regina tonight, you may know who I'm talking about, but it's all been anonymous so far. They have paid... Uh, about $4.2 million for this case. And if you add it all up after that, including fees and so on, it's closer to $5 million. So can you imagine the case, that case of cards bought for probably about 70 bucks back in the day, uh, just fetched more than $4 million at auction just because of how novel it is. Jason Simons is the sport card specialist for Dallas-based Heritage Auctions. They sold the cards and he joins me now. Jason, thanks for your time tonight. Yeah, thanks for having me. Well, this, got, this one got pretty competitive, didn't it? Because I was looking, sort of following along in the news, and the last time I'd seen it sort of hit the $2 million mark. And wow, it, it, it got quite considerably higher than that. It did. Um, a lot of the bidding happens towards the end. And um, in this case, the closing night was uh, scheduled for 11 p.m. Um, local time, and it went into 1 a.m. the next day. Wow. Um, that's my bidding, yeah. Where did it where did it wind up? Because it, it seems like it got quite high. And when you add in sort of the other fees involved, it's a it's a big chunk of change for those cards. Yeah. So the total price realized came to three point seven two million dollars US. So right around five million Canadian. Wow. And uh, what this is is a seventy nine OPG hockey case, a wax case. So it um if you remember going to the local grocery store and seeing boxes of packs on the counter or near the checkout aisle. This is a case that would have been shipped to one of the distributors or to the grocery store with the 16 boxes inside. So no one has ever seen one. No one knew it existed. The family didn't even know it. They had it. Um, it was some, it was sort of just discovered in November. And um, after, after several months of working on this auction, uh, we finally have the result. Amazing. I mean, I guess the fact that it lay undiscovered for 45 years is part of the mystery, part of the mystique and part of the attractiveness to anyone buying them. They're just you, don't, you can't think of any other many other incidences where this would happen. Right, right. It's like finding an undiscovered Picasso or, or something, something along those lines. It's uh, certainly up there in value. Um, you know, it's un, it's really unheard of in this in this industry to, to find something quite like this undiscovered because by now, everyone knows that hockey cards, baseball cards might have a little bit of value. So usually people go through their their attics and their basements and uh, and look for this stuff. But this was a this one was a new one for us. Do you have any any I, I know I know the family themselves in Saskatchewan have chosen to remain anonymous and all this. But do you have any sort of idea of how the story unfolded, where these cards could have possibly have come from? Yeah. So um, this consigner, our consigner was a. Uh, big hobbyist uh, back in the 70s, the 60s, 70s, and 80s. And he had been buying up boxes. And in some cases, he'd buy up cases of cards to open. And this 79 hockey case was frankly bought and just he never got around to opening it. So he had bought, yeah, he had bought other boxes at the time and he had put together several sets and he had um, really amassed a nice collection, but he had been buying more material than he could open and this sort of laid just in storage in his house for for all these years so it wasn't until um until recently did the son start to clean out his dad's his father's house and while he was going through this process it was like peeling back layers of a tree as he was getting 
further and further in and he was reaching older and older and older material and eventually he he stumbled on this 79 opichi case and right. so he had reached out to us and said hey jason i think i found something good and it was uh this case yeah what was your reaction to that yes indeed you found <laughs> something good my young man yeah, yeah. You, know, you know what my first re- my first reaction was uh send me a picture because right. um you know for for us it's this has been sort of like uh like the Loch Ness monster or or Sasquatch you know right. you, you hear rumors like oh that they're out there and you hear people say oh there's a sighting of one but no one has ever actually been able to produce a photo of a 79 Opichi case and so the first thing i said was send me a photograph and up until that point that was the first time up until that point no one has seen one and this was the first time anyone has actually seen a photograph at least within our hobby of this case wow I remember. Yeah. I mean, I remember that year vividly because I was about eight or nine and was buying up hockey cards like there were no tomorrow. The blue cards, obviously, I think we all remember yep. them. And of course, I mean, we've already explained this, but for for listeners who mightn't understand, this is much more prize than a seventy eight box, seventy eight case or an eighty <laughs> yeah. case, just because of Wayne Gretzky. Right? I mean, he changes the entire dynamic of that set of cards. Oh, oh, without a doubt. If this was a 1980 box for your listeners, um, you know, this would still be a pretty cool discovery, but it would be worth about a tenth of what this one sold for. You know, it'd be several hundred thousand dollars, not several million. Yeah, it's it's remarkable. And I guess the fact that they stayed in such good condition all this time, too, in of itself is pretty, pretty awesome. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, you know, sometimes you see these cases, sometimes they have a little bit of damage here or there. But in this in this instance, it was it was pristine. Um, you know, these boxes, the the actual wax boxes are white. So um, so the ones that are out there in circulation that people have discovered and people know about um, and I'm talking about the individual boxes, the white has has become discolored. It, it looks almost like a like a like a tannish, you right. know, it. it it's uh, not not as as perfectly white as you would you would imagine it should be. But when Steve Hart from uh, Baseball Card Exchange, who's the authenticator here, opened these this case and pulled out these boxes, the first thing he said was, "These are the whitest boxes I've ever seen." Oh wow! Yeah. So so really mint condition basically. And there could be, I mean, I guess who knows? Uh, there could be many Wayne Gretzky cards in there. There could be a few. I mean, we don't know until they're open. But that's uh, that's that's the mystery. <laughs> Yeah, that's the five million dollar question. Yeah, what happens with them now? I mean, it, by the way, they were bought by a Canadian, which is which yeah. is kind of awesome if they stay in Canada. But what potentially could I? I'm I'm picturing someone sitting there, you know, chewing a big wad of that awful bubble gum, opening pack after pack after pack, and that's not what's going to happen. Clearly, uh, no, <laughs> I would be very surprised if that's what if that happens. Um, what will likely happen is this will stay as it is because. For a lot of people, a lot of collectors, it's uh, considered an investment. If you have, you know, some some money burning a hole in your pocket and you're looking to spend five million Canadian on something, um, you know, this this is a is a pretty safe place to to store it because unopened wax, unopened uh, sports cards have historically done very well um, over the years. To put it in perspective, this box, an OPG, a 1979 OPG box, was maybe around fifty to $70,000 only a few years ago. And now they sell for one hundred fifty to 200000 Right. And that's any year without the Gretzky factor. Yes. Yeah. Wow. So that's just the, the appreciation over time. Right. So in this case, probably the, the best bet's just to leave it as is. Or I guess you could potentially sell off the the individual boxes of packs. Right. 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 So so if this 
if this case is opened, I would imagine um, the what will happen is the individual boxes might be sold off. And maybe this this individual who purchased it will try to recoup some of his money by selling off half the, half the case. And there are people out there who will spend good money to have a case fresh 1979 Opeachy hockey box. Yeah. Man, Jason, I do remember those boxes very well. Now, I remember, of course, in America, it was tops, right? Because I used to get hockey cards in the States, too, sometimes. I guess the Opeachy, uh, traditionally, when it comes to hockey specifically, are the ones yep. that are considered to be more valuable. Yep. When it comes to hockey, it's Canada that drives the market, and um, Canadians prefer the Opeachy. Um, the tops had a little bit higher of a print run than Opeachy did. So Opeachy is a little bit rarer, but um, just because it is the Canadian version of these hockey cards they are um, the much more desirable versions jason simons is the sports card specialist for dallas-based heritage auctions uh they've just sold a case of 1979 opg hockey cards unopened so it's mint condition sat there for more than four decades uh they include the wayne gretzky rookie card of course which in of itself if there were a couple of dozen of them in those unopened packs you've basically almost paid for them already i think um Jason, there were other cards up there as well. There's been there were baseball cards. I guess this person who uh, remains anonymous in Saskatchewan was a was a big collector. So it's like a treasure trove in that attic. Yes, um, you know, you take out this Wayne Gretzky case, the '79 case, and it's still one of the most significant Canadian sports card discoveries we've ever seen. Um, you know, it, it, he had other cases from from other years, from other sports. He had um, a '77 OPG baseball case, which right. no one has ever seen before. '78 OPG baseball, '79 baseball. He had boxes on boxes um, of of unopened material, and it was just because he had been buying all this material. And he had every intention of opening it at the time, but just was buying more than he could open. So wow. this was just sitting in his house. Yeah, and that, I mean, 77, you know, kind of the year the Blue Jays came into existence. There is some some value in it, well, for Canadians specifically, but I guess on the baseball card side, uh, it's the tops cards that are more coveted than the Opeachy ones, right? Um, yeah, but depends. what yeah. the what the Opeachy, uh, the Canadian versions have for them is they have a much a much shorter print run. They're a, they're very rare compared to to the tops counterparts. So finding unopened boxes of this and high grade examples of these cards, there's still significant value here. You know, take out the '79 Opeachy Wayne Gretzky case, and there was still well over half a million dollars worth of unopened boxes that we discovered from from other years and other sports. Unbelievable. I mean, it's it's mm -hmm. just a, the fact they sat untouched for so long too is interesting because as you mentioned, even a decade ago they would have been worth a fraction of what they're worth now. Yeah, the the family really picked the best, <laughs> really picked the good time to uh, to uh, do some spring cleaning. No kidding. So those ones are going up for sale eventually, right? That's kind of the plan. Yes. So though everything is back in Dallas at our um, HQ, our headquarters, and so what is going going on right now is we are going through everything. We have uh, we filled up an entire van of this uh, this gentleman's collection. And we have um, the fun job of sifting through all these cards and figuring out what's worth what and how best to sell this. So um, we're expecting to to be um, going live with a lot of these auctions in April, May and June. And um, there's just so much material here that we're probably going to be having Canadian baseball cards and Canadian uh, material in our auctions for the for the next calendar year. Wow. Is there anything yep. in there that you're looking out for? I'm trying because I, I bought those cards. I'm trying to think of think specifically of ones that would be valuable from back then. There must be there must be a few, but I I wouldn't I, I now I forget. Yeah. So um, you know, it was it was 
so for the baseball, I want to say he started in 76 into the early 80s. And so, you know, with 76 tops, there, there's a lot of key key um, star cards in these in these uh, in these sets. I mean, you're going to look for names like um, like George Brett or Robin right. Young, um, Roberto Clemente. You're going to be looking for for some of those big names of the era. Um, there are some big rookie cards as well throughout the years, but um, really a lot of the value is stemmed from the fact that these aren't opened. They display right. really well. Collectors have some sort of nostalgic draw to remembering going to the grocery store with their mom and buying packs of of these cards. Um, and you know, having these, having these in the original boxes, it's, it's a neat display piece and they, they, um, they never really go out of style. I hadn't thought of that. The fact that these are a time capsule, but the capsule is worth as much as what's in it. In some senses, just the idea of having it is worth as much what as the cards inside and the idea of what's in there. Yes. Yes. It's like, um, it's, it's like owning a nice bottle of wine and just letting it appreciate a little bit. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Well, uh, Jason, thank you so much. We'll be keeping an eye out to see what else uh, pops up in the next little while. Thanks so much for your time. Yeah, thank you. We are believing that the process for Charlotte to be pregnant is being done by something called parthenogenesis. literally translates into virgin birth or miracle birth. And what happens is the female will develop the eggs, and then the eggs will develop embryos. They'll grow in the eggs, and once they get so big, they will literally hatch out of the eggs while they are still inside of the mother. That's Brenda Raymer, uh, by the way, executive director of the Aquarium and Shark Lab in Hendersonville, North Carolina. Uh, And it begs the question, it takes two, right? Or does it? Mystery surrounds how a female stingray at an aquarium in North Carolina got pregnant despite not having a male ray in her tank for nearly a decade. She could deliver soon, but as of yesterday, Charlotte, the ray, uh, still hasn't had her pups. Apparently, she had a a nice meal that she enjoyed yesterday because there's been a lot of eyes on Charlotte of late. Uh, There's been a lot of speculation about this so-called, about this conception, if you'd like. One of them was that it was one of the male sharks. There were five of those in her tanks, but experts say, in her tank rather, but experts say that is excessively unlikely. Instead, uh, the conception is probably the result of something, as was mentioned, in that clip, uh, parthenogenesis, a rare form of asexual reproduction that's observed in some animals, including fish, birds, and amphibians. Researchers don't fully understand why it happens or what triggers it. It's certainly not the first time it's happened with an aquatic species. More than 15 years ago, for example, researchers documented how a captive hammerhead shark in Omaha, Nebraska, of all places, which is about as far from the uh, hammerhead's um, sort of uh, stomping grounds as you could possibly get, gave birth to a pup without mating as well. Um, The scientist who led that research was Damien Chapman. So we thought we'd call Damien back and say, what do you think of this stingray? What's going on? Chapman is now a senior scientist and director of the Center for Shark Research at Moat. And he joins me now from Belize. Uh, Thank you so much for your time tonight, Damien. Hi, no problem. This is quite the mystery on our hands, isn't it? I mean, these stories pop up every once in a while and people pay an awful lot of attention to them. But this this one has a lot of people asking questions. Yeah, it sure does. I mean, I've, I, I guess you could say I, I've been at the epicenter of this because the very first case in a shark was something I discovered during my PhD. Uh, so, so that one was was quite the uh, media explosion. Um, right. But I think it might have been matched by this one, uh, but maybe maybe for <laughs> some some fishy reasons. 
<laughs> Indeed. Yeah, I mean, it, it was the hammerhead, right? Was that was that the, that the one that goes back a while? Yeah, that that yeah. was the that was the very first one, uh, a bonnethead shark uh, in Omaha, Nebraska. Wow. And so what's ha- what's going on? I mean, there have been theories, right? So I've watched different news reports on it. There is one, of course, that these two sharks, small sharks, were put into the same tank as said as Charlotte, the, the the ray. But that seems that seems highly unlikely, doesn't it? Yeah, I mean, that would be. Uh, I mean, if you imagine a, a dog and a cat hybridizing, which has never happened in all the history of human beings having dogs and cats together, this would be even more unlikely than that. So, um, so, so, so that, that idea, I think we can, can throw out. So in that sense, uh, what may have happened here? And I think we're going to hear the word partho or parthi, parthi, parthenogenesis. There we go. Parthenogenesis. Uh, biologists really love the fancy words. Um, so yeah, parthenogenesis. Parthenogenesis is a, a fancy way of saying that the female reproduces without a male, without sex. So what what happens is is that um, when when the when the eggs are produced, uh, if you remember back to high school, the process meiosis, uh, the the production of the eggs, there are three byproduct cells uh, that are left over called polar bodies, and what happens in this case we think is that the the egg which has half the female's genetic material. Uh, it's not fertilized where it would normally get the other half of its genetic material from its dad, but left alone without being fertilized, one of the polar bodies fuses with the egg and restores the condition of having like a, you know, a full two copies of every piece of the genome. And there you go. You've got an offspring with a female and no male. Wow. And and this is sort of the best case this is the best assumption about what's happened here with with charlotte yeah i i would say i i'm a big advocate of um waiting until there's a dna test done because you can right. you can recognize between these things very easily with dna tests these days and that's how we did it with the uh hammerhead shark and countless other researchers have done uh with with other species so i i'm kind of a you know, wait and see until the what the DNA says, because you never know. Nature's a weird uh, creature. Things, strange things happen. But I think a, a shark and a and a ray hybridizing is is a little little bit out there, and and I don't think the DNA will show that. No, does this happen specifically? I mean, in this case, it happened in captivity, and one wonders. Of course, I don't think Charlotte had had a male ray around her for years and years and years. So, what might have prompted? Uh, this parthenogenesis? Well, it's interesting. I I think it's a case of if, you know, these females, of course, they're in captivity with no males, they continue to ovulate to produce eggs, right? So I think there's just a certain percentage of of these eggs that will accidentally develop like that. It's, it's, I I don't think it's uh, something that uh, Charlotte is the name of the Ray, right? That's right. Yeah, Charlotte wanted to be a mother one day and, and, and did it. Uh, no. I think it's just something that if you leave enough eggs alone, this will happen with certain species. And and I, I'm pretty confident that's what the DNA will, will tell us. Yeah, um, that's it. Yeah, go ahead. I was going to say, you pointed to it being in captivity and, and, you know, mostly this is documented in captivity because uh, we don't follow female sharks and rays around and, and Indeed. take much notice of their sex life, shall we say. 
but uh, we're in captivity. We certainly can do that. But the uh, the interesting thing is, as a student of mine, Andrew Fields, Dr. Andrew Fields, uh, a few years ago discovered that it was a species of ray that was doing it in the wild wow. in southwest Florida near Moat. Uh, it's, a, it's called a small-toothed sawfish. It's a critically endangered species, and 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 he and and, and he discovered that that they were they were they were doing that in the wild probably because the females occasionally just can't find a mate because there's too few of them. Necessity then. Uh, I mean, cl- clearly necessity, the mother yeah. of invention, right? Yeah. Yeah. Opportunity, I guess, opportunity and necessity. <laughs> yes, indeed. They're not, I mean, just to be clear, this would not be a clone of mom, right? No, what, it's it's probably the best way to say it is a half a clone because right. um, the, it doesn't get all of mom's uh, genetic material. It just gets two copies of the same half so uh what, what what that means is is they the these uh uh offspring that develop like this typically don't have a lot of genetic diversity because you know we we get genetic diversity individually because we have certain copies of genes from mom and certain copies of genes from dad and some of those are different so so we get a little bit of genetic diversity but this is like everything is from mom so it's like the ultimate inbred sort of situation. Damien Chapman is senior scientist and director of the Center for Shark Research at Moat. We're talking about a female stingray in North Carolina. Charlotte is her name. She's become pregnant, even though there are no male rays in her tank and haven't been for ever now, eight years or so. Uh, there are a couple of male sharks in her tank. We've been talking about that with with Damien, and uh, it doesn't seem plausible. Although we'll find out, I suppose, when there's a DNA uh, test done on the on the offspring, uh, but it doesn't seem plausible that the sharks were responsible for this. So what could be? It could well be something called parthenogenesis, which is essentially uh, that there is no male involved in this. And Damien found that uh, in a shark. He was the first to find that in a hammerhead shark several years ago now. Damien, take me back to the shark thing, because I do remember it being a big, a very big deal at the time. Yeah, it was something that was uh, pretty, pretty shocking. Uh, it, it, the, the, the birth took place in a zoo, the Henry Dawley Zoo in Omaha, Nebraska. Um, not a place where I normally do marine biology, you but somehow, think, yeah. I ended, yeah. <laughs> somehow I ended up with the DNA samples because I was I was researching the sort of normal mating behavior of of this species, and uh, I was asked to. There were three potential female mothers, and then the the little pup that was born, and I was charged with finding out which one was the mother and, and and to try to get some idea of what happened. And what had happened was I, I pinned I pinned the offspring on a particular mother with the DNA and excluded the other two. But the shocking thing was was that there was absolutely no genetic material uh other than the mothers, which is not compatible with there being a father. So it was uh I I did that in Belfast, Northern Ireland. And uh, I lost a pint of Guinness on that. It's, it's actually what what had happened. But we dove into the the, the biology textbooks and and realized that snakes and certain uh, lizards and even chickens and turkeys can reproduce like that. And we were able to add sharks to the list. It is an incredible phenomenon because I think I think it goes. I mean, it, it, it that's why people are so mystified by it, this idea that somehow in in now does it does it happen necessarily in periods of of uh, and you pointed it out with the ray earlier and we and we don't know much about this happening uh, in the wild but does this happen purely in moments where there is no alternative or is this something that can simply happen uh, just because? 
I think it's a just because mm-hmm. I, I don't necessarily think that the females become aware that there there's no ma- males right. around or whatever. I, I think if a female does not encounter a male during the normal mating season, um, her her eggs will basically break down and be sort of reused by the body. But I think during that process, there's some percentage, and I have no idea what that percentage is, that will undergo parthenogenesis. Um, that, 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 that's speculation. We don't know that to be true, but right. I think that's the most likely uh, hypothesis. But, in, I mean, clearly very, very rare. We wouldn't be talking about Charlotte the Ray, right? Yeah, you know, it's interesting because it, you, you never know it, it it's 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 uncommon in, in captivity but if, if you again dive into google you, you do see a fair few cases of this uh cropping up here and there and those are just the ones that get detected and dna tested so you know we're not we're not doing a ton of dna testing and following female sharks out in the wild so you never know it it, it could be more common than than we think in the wild yeah i, I suppose we shouldn't sort of see this as somehow allowing because of that we have so much evidence to the contrary allowing a species to sort of survive right a threatened species to survive yeah my my guess would be if if the species was relying on this it would be in major trouble um and, and sharks and rays uh so far uh it seems that almost all of the time it's only females that are produced in this manner the female produces a female so that's not going to help you too much in the long run but I could certainly see in cases if, you know, if population density gets really, really low, it could allow a female to reproduce, produce a female or two offspring and sort of let them hold on for that little bit longer in case a male did show up um, that so that they could sort of persist. But mm-hmm. my guess is, is that would be pretty, uh, you know, that would be a pretty, um, uh, you know, not so good way to hang on. No. How did that pup and speak? You know, I, I imagine being a hammerhead in Nebraska probably isn't all that much fun. But how did that? How did that pup end up doing the one that was born uh, to that one hammerhead shark in the aquarium in Nebraska? Well, that was an unfortunate case because uh, these, these small hammerheads are, are really quite small when they're born. Uh, the 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 uh, this is a small species of hammerhead. It's only about three feet. Well, actually, I'm speaking to Canadians, so I can use meters. Yes, so, you can. <laughs> they're, only about, they're only about 70 to 80 centimeters long right. adults. And when they're, when they're born, they're about 25 centimeters or less. And so um, this one actually was killed by something else in the tank before oh. we could really assess if it was going to be viable. Um, but since then, there have been cases of of different sharks and s- some rays. Uh, the the offspring that are produced through parthenogenesis do survive. Um, sometimes they don't, and it's probably because um, of that situation uh, that I mentioned earlier that they they have uh, less genetic variability than a typical offspring produced through sex. So it could be that that sort of weakens them, makes them more likely to express congenital defects and such. But it is possible that they can survive. And I, I do believe it's possible that some of them could even reproduce. Right. So I guess in this case, with this ray, we're just waiting for the D. We're waiting for the birth, obviously. I don't know if that's happened yet and when we're waiting for the DNA, clearly. Yeah, I think that, you know, the birth is the birth. Um, uh, you know, it's it's obviously pregnant. It, it will give birth. 
um, unless the little stingrays look like half shark, half rafe, <laughs> or something quite, like that. That'd be quite that the would look. be a big clue. That then then my jaw would drop, and I would I would gladly eat humble pie. That okay, or, or, or lose another pint of Guinness, or lose another pint of Guinness. Exactly. But my my guess is what's going to come uh, from the birth is a pretty normal looking little stingray, uh, or two, three, four, however many there are. Um, they may be perfectly fine. They may be a little um, messed up. Uh, but I think really what I'm waiting for is the DNA test. Damien, thank you for your time on this. I appreciate it. Thanks very much. This is a this is an interesting story, one that um, that we, we saw an article in a newspaper in the Ottawa Citizen about this and thought it was an interesting story. I'll tell you why to some extent. Many, many years ago, one of my closest friends, we were just still in our 30s, um, passed away from pancreatic cancer. And it was tough. I mean, at that age, you're not really, you know, you probably haven't had many friends who've passed. You may have lost a grandparent or two, or perhaps you've lost a parent. But grief is tough when you're that age because you're not really prepared for it. Nothing about your life at that age really prepares you for even the notion of grief, of losing someone close to you, right? Um, what I did essentially is what so many people at, in that stage of life do. I, I worked. I just kept working. I just worked a lot, um, which probably wasn't the healthiest way to deal with that kind of loss. But it's just what you do when you're that age. It just seemed like the natural thing to do. I try to pretend that it wasn't uh, that it didn't have a huge impact and just work. Of course, later in life, you realize looking back at those sorts of events in your life that, of course, they have a massive impact on you, right? When you lose someone very close to you very suddenly and very painfully, it can be terrible. It can, and coping with it is takes takes a lot of knowledge and takes a lot of admission to yourself that you're living through something difficult. That's exactly what my next guest went through when his wife um, had cancer as well back in uh, about 10 years ago. And in 2016, she passed away. And he promised her that he would survive. Those were his terms. He would survive, that he would carry on, especially for their uh, by then adult daughter. Um, so he began walking. He basically had was a self proclaimed or self-admitted couch potato at this point who didn't really like to get off uh, the couch and do much. And he felt like the only way to get through this time, the only way to survive, as he put it, would be to start moving, would be to start doing something. Just taking one, even just one step at a time was going to help. So he started with walking uh, and he did a lot of walking around Ottawa. That turned to speed walking. Then, you know, it can be a little bit painful to walk a lot. Uh, so he, he got into swimming again. And that was difficult, but he continued to do it. And then he found triathlons because he'd sort of been doing two-thirds of that. So then he ended up doing some triathlons. He ran a half marathon. So as you can see, the exercise really was vital to this whole idea of, of coping with grief, right, of, of surviving. And finally... He took up something that's that is something that I've never found to be too uh, in, appealing, and that's I, I don't know why that is, but it's ice swimming. He began ice swimming. So as people bundle up to guard against the wind and the cold of an Ottawa winter, I don't know if you've ever been in Ottawa in the winter time, but it is a windy, cold often humid place. It's not sort of Edmonton cold because I've spent winters in both those cities over time. It's a different, it's not a prairie cold. It's a different kind of cold. There's something about the wind off the river that just 
cuts right, and the humidity, a bit like Quebec City, where I've also spent a winter, uh, which cuts right through you. I mean, it's just like it's like a knife's edge right through you, the cold. Um, but on most days, you can find Tom uh, Heyerdahl out on the Ottawa River, tending to his 25-meter lane that he's carved out of the ice in the river with an axe and a saw, and where most days he's out there taking a swim, doing laps for at least a few minutes, 10 minutes, I think it is. But it's really been his way of coping, and we thought we would invite him on the show to tell us all about it. And Tom Heyerdahl joins me now. Tom, thank you for your time tonight. No problem. These were some remarkable pictures of this little swim lane you've dug yourself or carved yourself in the Ottawa <laughs> River. Uh, it's, uh, and you do this every day. That's correct, yes. Tell me a bit about uh, just the inspiration for for the you know where you – how you wound up sort of carving yourself a little, a little lane right in the Ottawa River because it is uh, it, it, it what an in, what an interesting idea. <laughs> well, it sort of came by degrees. Like last year, there was a gentleman who carved a, a twelve meter lane uh, alongside two dipping holes, and I was very keen to see the swim lane because that's what I do. I swim right. in cold water, so. I bought myself a saw, uh, similar to his, a four-foot-long handsaw uh, with a four-foot handle on it, and uh, went to town. And then a couple of my friends also got one. So I'm very grateful that it's not just myself carving out all that ice uh, every morning because it freezes over each night. I was going to say, it does. It, it actually you actually have to sort of start not from scratch, but you do have to start over every day. That's correct. So, so start over and then if possible expand. So, uh, the, the, the starting over is, uh, one inch thick. Usually it can be two inches thick. If, if I miss a day, uh, or like only partially clear it, then, then I'm looking at three or more inches, which is heavy duty. Uh, and then the fresh ice that as we expanded to 25 meters, that was over, Good, strong ice, 8 to 10 inches thick, and then also 8 to 10 inches of uh, packed snow slush on top wow. of that. Yeah. So that listeners understand, how much time do you spend swimming? How much time do you actually spend in that water? Uh, my maximum is, you know, 10, 11 minutes, which right. is plenty. <laughs> yeah. but I, Anybody who's been in, not even, I mean, you're in, you're in essentially zero degree water right more or less yeah and the, it does a lot of strange things to the body doesn't it it does indeed yeah it it uh definitely tightens up the muscles and 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 makes swimming difficult for that reason and, and instantly with bare hands and uh, like i swim by competitive swim rules so a, a regular bathing suit no neoprene no wetsuit no booties no no uh neoprene mitts no neoprene cap so right. we're allowed a, a silicon cap Earplugs are essential. I use silicon soft malleable um, earplugs, which are really great. You don't want ice water in your ears. And goggles, and 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 that's it. Yeah, and standard standard bathing suit. Wow, like someone getting in the water in Hawaii, right? Basically, I mean, it's the same. <laughs> The same gear. I was interested to see, because we've talked about this, we've talked about sort of cold water immersion on the show before. I was interested to see that actually the most challenging time is not getting in, and it's not the swimming, it's the getting out. And the way you explained it, it all of a sudden made perfect sense. Thank you. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's, it's a little bit of both. The, the first 30 to 60 seconds, I should come up with a better word, I guess, but it's painful. It, right. it just hurts. And your senses are being overwhelmed with with the input whatever thoughts you had in your gray matter is gone and you're just 
your 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 brain stem takes over screaming at you to get out but you go numb in the water and then once you're out yes you've got to be very focused you feel great for 10 minutes and on average and and the reason that's a set time limit is when you first go in your body restricts the blood flow to your arms legs and head and it does that on purpose so to keep your heart warm so it drives up your blood pressure but when you get out and you you start warming up it does the opposite, and but that takes about ten minutes, fifteen minutes, before it releases that um, the cold blood from your arms and legs back to your heart, and your blood pressure drops. But yeah, that's where you start to shiver uh, uncontrollably. If if you indeed, that's called after drop. If you indeed have been in long enough to experience that. That's when that happens. Right. And you have a rubber mat, I gather, that you stand on just to, to avoid things like, I mean, it, I, I just hadn't thought of all the com- the complexities of getting oh, out because yeah. you always think of being in the water. Getting out is the easy part, right? You're done. You're done the swim. You're done the, you're done the hard part. But thinking about it be, as being uh, a challenge as well was interesting. Yeah. And because we have no ladders here, um, it's, it's lowering yourself and lower. Please, if you ever do this, do it with experienced people. Learn something about it. Right. No diving, no jumping. You know, this is not a sport for, 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 you know, the fainted heart, heart, indeed. Yeah. It's not the thing to do after having a beer. So it's, 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 so you lower yourself in and I have constructed this so that it is only about two and a half, three feet deep at one end and only about four, four and a half feet at, at the deepest part. And because we want people to be in the water or on the ice and, and definitely not under the ice. So. But yeah, it's it's uh, so getting in slowly and also you should pick a depth at which you can get yourself out of the ice. Right. <laughs> uh, I would have the water onto that. So but yes, as you said, the um, rubber mats are essential because especially I'd say all the time, you really don't want bare skin on ice. I don't recommend it, especially depending on how long you've been in the water. Damage to your skin can happen almost immediately. And and, and I've. I've experienced it where it's like minus 15, minus 20, and I put my knee up on the ice and then it, you know, I go home and wonder why my side of my knee is black, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I suppose these are things you learn, unfortunately, from experience, right? Yeah. 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 Tell, tell me, it's, I mean, to go back in time, this it's, and, and like so many people who, who live through grief and how, how do you cope with it and how, what do you do to try to get through it? I, I guess for you, exercise and sort of pushing yourself, pushing your physical limits was really part of sort of trying to come to terms with with your wife who who you lost, I guess, in 2016. And my condolences, I know it's been almost eight years, but my condolences. Thank you. Yeah, it it was, it was a turning point in my life. You know, I, I, before that point, I I had been dealing with mental illness uh, myself and, and, um, adding the uh, whole grief process to that uh, was not, not helpful um i it came down to for me that i you know and i was overweight and i was a bit of a couch potato and also the medication i'm on causes me to gain more weight and slows down my metabolism so but it was like if i could just get my shoes on every day that was my commitment myself and so i did and then i ended up walking more and more each day after two years, I was doing um, 21 kilometers every day and, you know, getting those 30,000 steps on the, wow. on the phone, on the yeah. bit. But, you know, and then I thought, ah, this is a little dull. Maybe I could swim like I did when I was a kid a little bit. And uh, 
So I started with that and I, I found uh, there were spin bikes nearby and I thought, okay, doing that. And uh, somebody said, you're training for triathlon. And I went, okay. <laughs> yeah. And so, you know, post uh, losing my wife, post loss, I really didn't know what that would look like in the future, but I made that commitment to myself to, and to her to take those first steps. And, right. um, you know, and, and so then after 22 triathlons, in two years and a bunch of other events you know as a big chunky guy i did uh four half marathon runs and not fast but i got them done you got there and uh you know i i bumped into the right person that <laughs> suggested I, I i cold swim with them and uh what what drew me to it it was there was a lot of laughter involved and i thought well that seems okay Tom Heyerdahl is with us this half hour. He is a cold water swimmer, um, and he does so through the winter in the Ottawa River. It's cold at this time of year, down around zero. Carves himself out a nice little lane each and every day, chips away at the ice, and then jumps in, or doesn't jump in, I should say, lowers himself in. He was saying that uh, is an important part of all this earlier. It was it was during sort of it was inadvertent, right? You 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 were walking by and you heard some people talking, or you heard people in the water laughing, having a good time, and wondered what they were up to, considering it was it, not a swimming time of year. Yeah, it was late October and uh, getting close to Halloween, and I had done this uh, five or six hour hike, and I was ready to get warm up in my car, but I heard this uncharacteristic laughter coming from the lake, and I thought, man. I got to check this out. So I go down and there's, there's four ladies in, in bathing suits just having the time of their lives. <laughs> in the water, and, right? In Meach Lake, yeah. Wow. In Meach Lake, yeah. And it was below 10 degrees in the water. So I, I'm just like, okay, I'd never seen that. I didn't know about this. And, and um, of course, they were like, join us. And I'm like, my wetsuit's at home? <laughs> and they're <laughs> like, yeah, you don't need a blankety-blank wetsuit. So yeah. I'm like, okay. So uh, a couple of, uh, you know, shortly after I um, found them on Facebook and, and they invited me again. And so I was swimming with them on weekends. And uh, one of them, Nadine Bennett, said, would you would you witness my attempt on uh, Saturday at 8 a.m.? Don't talk to anybody about it, blah, blah, blah. Uh, make sure your phone is fully charged and I might need video. And I'm like, OK. So then I said, attempt what? And she sent me all this information of this group that i didn't know existed the international ice swimmers association it's a worldwide association and uh they had this challenge of swimming a mile uh 1609 meters in below five degree water temp and i watched nadine bennett that day in 2018 become the first woman in canada to accomplish that wow uh, yeah, that blew my mind. Yeah, that is mind blowing. <laughs> Speaking of mind yeah. blowing, I, you know, I spent some time living in in England. You've been looking at maybe at, at maybe tackling the English Channel, which is a, a what about a thirty two kilometer swim. That's a and the water there is, by the way, because I've been, if you've ever been to anywhere like Brighton or Calais, or the water there is not not warm. It's not Ottawa River cold, but it's certainly by no means warm. No, so it's it's sixteen degrees below sixteen, and. Um, by the way, I, I did eventually get my own ice mile. In fact, right. I have two ice miles. Oh, congratulations. Third man in Canada. Yes. Yeah, third man in Canada to achieve that. But yes, so this does help in preparation. You build a brown fat, and, and, and that's the good fat now they've determined, and that it can burn white fat. Anyway, it's it's also helpful in keeping you uh, warm and protected when you're doing such things as training for the English Channel. So every year now, 
well, by accident, my first 10K, I swam in late September and uh, in 15 to 16 degrees. And because I was slow at the time, uh, still just slightly less slower. It took virtually six hours in the water. And Nadine informed me, guess what? And I'm like, yeah, I think I just did a marathon swim. She goes, no, you just qualified for the English Channel. Wow. So because you need six hours and below 16 degrees. So Which you did. Yeah. So I do that every year now. And uh, I'm not, it takes like two, three years to, to book a, uh, a channel swim. Uh, there's only a certain number of crews and boats to right. do that. And, and a lot of people uh, want to do it for sure. Yeah. Yeah, especially post-2020, everything got backed up. There was a full year or so of people not being able to do it. So so it is a goal of mine. And But in the meantime, like I've got to work on my distance and, and my technique and my strength. Uh, really, I only started swimming six years ago, so <laughs> I've got a lot of catching up to do. Yeah. Um, so I swam 16 kilometers last year in, in Lake Memphremagog. Uh, in July when it was warmer and I'm booked to do 25 kilometers this year. And then I will attempt a 40 kilometers sometime after right. that. And then, and then, and then English, I could be ready for the, the channel. English channel awaits. It's, it's remarkable when you look back. I mean, you know, I think uh, almost all of us, not a mate, maybe, but all of us, all of us have lost someone to cancer over the years. And, you know, yeah. getting over it can be, can be tough, right? I mean, obviously it goes without saying and how you cope with it is, exercise it seems to me you know going out and doing what you've done is such a such a good way of trying to get through things because it it is healthy and it does do good things for your brain and you do feel good about yourself and that's clear from the way you talk about it right yeah and and it doesn't mean you don't grieve it's like and pain pain and suffering and 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 love which is why we're we're, we grieve is because we loved hard uh we grieve hard and ultimately uh, that and joy and 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 happiness uh, they can all coexist and <laughs> that's that's the journey that I've learned and and you know the the grieving hasn't stopped but it's sort of become integrated and life has happened and and even you know joy and happiness has happened and uh, also part, a big part of it is the community yeah, uh, the, the, the swim community mean, about yeah. the ice swimming community and uh, you know I was just down at an event with 175 of them for four days and it was crazy uh, where we were swimming you know 200 meters 100 meters 50 meters and just just a blast and and their their ability to set goals and and also you know we shared the various uh, because of the article many people came up to me and and shared with me about their loss or right. about their struggle with mental health so yeah well tom I'll, next time i'm in ottawa I'll, I'll i'll look out for you in the winter on the water uh thank you so much i appreciate your time okay man you may see me dragging a big yellow duck behind me Great to have you here on this Monday night. Every time, once in a while, you'll see a story that just leaves you scratching your head. Now, this one didn't make a lot of noise. It just sort of came and went quietly. But we've been talking about a series that Global News have been doing on anti-Semitism, on war criminals in this country. And this just sort of fit into it. According to the Canadian press, they just did an article last week, a federal government unit tasked with keeping war criminals out of this country has not published a report 
for years now. I mean, it has been literally been years since they published a report, eight years to be exact, and its budget hasn't been adjusted in more than two decades. Uh, the war crimes program has a mandate to prevent Canada from becoming a safe haven for people accused of committing atrocities, including genocide and crimes against humanity. It was set up back in 1998. Um, now, this had, was the outgrowth of many, many years uh, because there had been a big commission in the 80s, of course, called the DeShane Commission. And it had been an issue for a while in Canada about trying to figure out how many people were here, how many potential war criminals were in this country, how do you track them down, what do you do when you do, and so on. So this was sort of set up after all of that in 1998. It was a joint effort between the Departments of Justice and Immigration, the RCMP, and the Canada Border Services Agency. And between 1998 and 2008, according to the CP article, they reported annually on their activities, talking about what they were up to and how, how things were going, the cases they were looking into. There were hundreds of them and the results of them as well. Since 20, I mean, since then, since 2008, there have been two reports. That's 15 years. We're getting into year 16 now. Two reports and none since 2015. So eight years, no reports. Um, now, when asked about the data, the CP Canadian Press asked them about what happened here, and they said the war crimes program is currently working to modernize its public report, public reporting practices um, and upgrading the website. Still, the website, as far as I could tell, hadn't been touched in years either. It just feels like this whole group has gone somewhat dormant. Their budget's about $15.6 million. That's the same as they've had for years and years and years now, of course, with inflation. Uh, that means they actually have a lot less money. So what does this mean? Does this mean that Canada just simply no longer takes this seriously? That we're no longer funding the one project or the one agency? Now, this is not entirely true because these other agencies also work at this, but this was meant to be the coordinated spot where all of this was taking place, and they just feels like they've completely fallen off the radar. Are, right? David Amatis is a senior lawyer for, for B'nai B'rith Canada. He wrote a book back in the 80s called Justice Delayed, Nazi War Criminals in Canada, and he joins me now. David, thanks for your time tonight. Well, thank you for inviting me. Tell me a bit about, about just the background here, because I remember the DeShane Commission, obviously, and then, and then there was a lot of talk, obviously, in the 80s and into the 90s about uh, those who may have come to Canada who had uh, passed uh, with, with the Nazis. And there was an, a real focus on trying to set up something permanent to do something about this, not just for Nazis, but for all forms of war criminals. What happened was uh, with the Commission of Inquiry and War Criminals, they recommended a number of different options for uh, bringing war criminals to justice. The government initially de uh, decided in favor of, of what they called a made in Canada solutions, prosecution rather than revocation of citizenship and deportation. Many of the uh, uh, persons who were suspect in Canada had come from Eastern Europe, Soviet Union, behind the Iron Curtain, and uh, while Canada didn't have operative extradition treaties with those countries, and the government's view was that just sending them back would uh, lead to uh, their potentially being either executed or, or tried unfairly, uh, and so they decided that it was uh, better to prosecute in Canada. And uh, the prosecutions didn't work. Uh, the case was uh, that really uh, ground the system to the halt was Imre Finta. Mm -hmm. uh, Finta was a, a somebody from Hungary who uh, was responsible for a concentration camp in Seged in Hungary that 
was near a train station and was uh, basically used to gather people up and shift them off to uh, Auschwitz or labor camps. And and Finta uh, or his lawyer didn't deny the facts. Uh, what they said was he didn't have a the requisite guilty mind because he basically believed Nazi propaganda that Jews were the enemy. And so he made uh, anti-Semitism uh, a defense. And the uh, judge put the defense to the jury, and the jury acquitted. So the legal issue became, could that be a defense? The Ontario Court of Appeal uh, uh, split three to two, saying yes, it could. The Supreme Court of Canada split four to three, yes, it could. Uh, And as a result, uh, prosecutions had ground to a halt, because once anti-Semitism became a defense, uh, the prosecution became uh, unworkable. Right. So then the government switched to deportation, revocation of citizenship and deportation. And and the trouble with that process was, first of all, it was political. Revocation of citizenship system at the time was, first of all, you went to court uh, for determination of whether or not the person entered, uh, when the person entered, the the person was guilty of fraud or failing to disclose uh, information or making uh, intentionally making misrepresentations. All these people who were uh, suspected war criminals didn't tell the truth about what they were doing on entry. So it was easy enough to establish uh, the requisite uh, test. But then it went to cabinet and uh, for the actual revocation after the finding of fraud or false representation. And uh, unfortunately, we had a very large entry of uh, suspected war criminals into Canada in, in the thousands. Well, there was four cases that they had where there was cases of fraud and the government uh, sat on uh, two different liberal governments sat on them did nothing the uh, the conservatives uh, revoked the 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 two uh, with german ethnicity and and didn't revoke the two with the ukrainian ethnicity largely at least in my estimation because of the difference in the lobbying efforts of the, the german and ukrainian communities in canada right. The whole system became terribly, uh, I mean, aside from that, the whole system was terribly fragmented. There was a multiplicity of steps. There was a possibility of going to court uh, for every single step. And the tendency was to for the government to wait for each step to start the next one. Right. I mean, after the Deschamps Commission, obviously, there is an establishment of certain things that happens. But we, we were talking specifically about the war, the war crimes program that was established in 1998, right, that brings together different agencies. It tries to, I think, alleviate some of the problems that you're talking about. Um, what we've now learned is that it hasn't really been doing, it doesn't seem to have done much work, or at least nothing that we can tell uh, in, in several years now. And I'm just wondering, if, if we go back to the establishment of that group, what's happened to it? What, why is it? And it was much broader than just former Nazis, obviously. First of all, there's a big constituency, and it's not just Nazis, for doing nothing, uh, because it's not just Nazis who got into Canada. There's perpetrators from other other communities. And in fact, Canada was a target destination. Uh, I mean, both for perpetrators and victims. And and in the system, you could possibly get somebody out once they entered through line, but it, it was very complex and lengthy, uh, and and in fact, non-functional. We had a huge problem and little resources devoted to it. There was a lot of, uh, you mentioned uh, 1998, there was a lot of internal feuding. Uh, the RCMP had a history of doing nothing. Uh, and, and then when they were mobilized to join this program, they ended up doing very little. 
And so, and there was a lot of uh, kind of tension between the RCP and the justice. So they tried to develop some sort of unity of system in a, through a war crimes program. And and I mean, that particular problem, uh, I think, was resolved. But the underfunding became more acute over time because the, the funding remained constant in dollar terms, but, of course, decreased because of inflation. And the result of uh, the underfunding was that the government was serializing cases rather than doing them simultaneously because they didn't have the funds to do several at once. They switched uh, to deportation and uh, revocation and deportation, partly because it was just cheaper. David Maness is with us, a senior lawyer for B'nai B'rith Canada. We're talking about uh, the fact that the federal government unit tasked with keeping war criminals out of this country apparently has not published a report on its activities in more than eight years. It's had the same budget for the past two decades. Um, this has always been a thorny, a thorny issue in this country, but does the group responsible for trying to keep war criminals either out of this country or finding them when they're here, has it sort of completely fallen apart? And we're talking to David Maitis about that. Um, David, just just the impact, were you surprised to find out that there's been no no sort of update on what they've been up to for nearly a decade now? You've already talked about the funding issue. Uh, is this body essentially n- not operating? Uh, first of all, I'm not surprised because I follow this fairly closely. So I'm constantly, I mean, uh, uh, looking to see if there's a report. And I, I, I would certainly know. And also the budget. I know th- that's a problem. I, I wouldn't say they're doing nothing. Uh, but they're not doing as... Uh, their budget isn't commensurate with the problem. Uh, as a result, they're, they're not really facing the problem squarely. The reality is that People lie to get into Canada, and once they're here, they end up staying forever, partly because the, the system isn't geared properly to deal with it in, in terms of the structure, and also partly because the, the funding isn't sufficient. That It's just that they become a constituency for an action which is more powerful politically than the constituency for action. Right. And we've seen this over successive governments, right, from through the through the end of the Chrétien years into the Martin years, the Harper years, and now into the Trudeau years, that this agency really hasn't had much in the way of, it hasn't had any increase in funding, really, in this century. No, in fact, objectively, uh, it's decreased because in dollar values, it's remained the same. Right. But if you take into account inflation, the real value is less. Right. And if we look at the impact of that, clearly, I mean, with the... Uh, with the whole issue around um, the person who was invited to Parliament, uh, Yaroslav Hunka, back back last fall. I mean, it certainly put this back in the spotlight. But one would think these days uh, the concerns about war criminals, quote unquote, coming to this country would be a pretty broad, a pretty broad net. Indeed, uh, the Holocaust was unprecedented and unique in a number of ways. But the reality is, since the Holocaust, there's been one genocide after another, including uh, ongoing ones today in different countries. And the perpetrators very often, I mean, if they're in power, they they tend to stay where they are. But if they're they're out of power, there's a tendency to flee. And, and Canada is the primary destination of choice. It's easy to get in. It's hard to get out once once you stay in. And uh, I, I'm involved, of course, in the Nazi war criminal issue, but I'm mm-hmm. involved in a lot of other human rights issues. And I know from other communities that their perpetrators are here and they see them on the streets, they hear about them and nothing's being done about it. Are there examples out there of, of countries that are that are doing this, that are better at this than we are now? Certainly not funding your one, your one group, your one program responsible for this would seem like a, a recipe for failure right off the bat. The United States is better. Uh, For the uh, Nazi war criminal effort, they 
generated a lot more activities than we did. Uh, they're also a lot better releasing the records. Uh, they've released records that we're still keeping secret. That, that, that's a constant problem. The Americans also have been revoking and deporting uh, rather than prosecuting. There were efforts in a lot of other countries. Uh, Germany, of course, was very interested in the anti-war criminal effort in and they did uh, a fair amount. And Britain was doing some, Australia was doing some. I, I mean, frankly, every country, other country was better. I think Canada's at the bottom of the pile. Well, that's, I mean, that's, that's a big statement, considering I think that there was a recognition of that even 25 years ago. Yeah, I think what was perhaps surprising is to find out even after all that was suggested and what was done back 25 years ago, that we're still basically at the bottom of the pile. Well, as I say, uh, I mean, ultimately, and you can see this through the documents we're trying to get released, that although this is a legal issue and a justice issue, uh, ultimately, uh, to get the whole thing started and going, it's a political issue. And and uh, we've got such a constituency of perpetrators in Canada that uh, it becomes very difficult to get the political will to do something. And, and, that, and that crosses all kinds of conflicts, I would imagine, and the Second World War. Well, indeed. I, I mean, it, it it includes contemporary conflicts. I mean, that's uh, if if you don't learn from the mistakes of the past, you repeat the mistakes of the past. I suppose the solution to this is is funding. I mean, in that that although I don't, I haven't I haven't read about this or heard about this in ages. So clearly, it's not a big priority. But one would have thought after all that happened last fall that maybe this would be on on people's radars once again. Well, certainly, uh, my, with my own, I mean, I'm involved with, as I say, a number of different victim communities, and and uh, we are trying uh, to get these victim communities together to form a political constituency for more action in this area, because, uh, first of all, victims are, are traumatized, and they, they generally don't like to get to, <laughs> to make a career out of victimization, so mm-hmm. to speak. Continually focusing on their victimization is a form of re-traumatization so that they tend to be less adamant, less organized than the perpetrators uh, and and their supporters are. But uh, we're certainly trying to develop constituencies of concern within the human rights community that focus on this issue. And I appreciate with uh, the the Nazis, uh, they were called war criminals, but there are also criminals against humanity. There are mm-hmm. also genocidal killers. I mean, it's it's not just violation of the laws of war. It's um, the, the whole panoply of international human rights crimes. David, as always, thank you. Okay, thank you. 